Okay, thank you very much. It's very nice to be... Um, the, the microphone will catch everything um, without your necessarily speaking right into it. Great, okay. This is a part of technology this morning that's working. What hasn't been working is transferring uh, my presentation from my government computer onto this computer. So I have to improvise slightly. It's not exactly um, the slides that I wanted to show you, but that's okay. I know the story that I wanted to, to tell, and um, uh, I hope I can keep you interested even if I don't follow the slides. And we can avoid a bit death by PowerPoint at the same time. So good morning and really good to be here. I was asked to talk about the links between the SDGs, the Sustainable Development Goals, and Positive Bees as a sort of big, broad topic. Um, Phil just reflected a bit about some ways to think about Positive Bees um, and, and some of the, the big and the smaller levels of where uh, actors that are trying to build it, to support it in different countries are, are acting. Um, I work for the UK's Department for International Development, and uh, for a long time there have been questions about why should a development agency that is ultimately there to reduce poverty care about peace and conflict. Um, I'm sure that many in this room will be familiar with some of the debates, but we have been you know, on a bit of a, of a journey there. Um, in the last era, the global ambitions that were first articulated before the SDGs, the Millennium Development Goals, um, we, that ran from as an ambition of the international community from 2010 to 2015, we had to realize, you know, sort of about midway through that none of the countries that were considered to be fragile and conflict effectors were on track to meet even one of the Millennium Development Goals. And when 2015 came, we're still very much in the space that most of the countries that had been on a list of, of countries affected badly by conflict had barely reached a single one of those ambitions. So just by looking at that interrelationship, we do realize, of course, that conflict and violence affects um, our ambitions around the world to reduce poverty and, and build better lives for people very much. It's, it's a bit obvious, but then if you look a bit uh, you know, at the statistics and ask yourself a bit deeper, so what can we do about it? How does a development actor that tries to, to, to reduce poverty um, as its main mandate do we take conflict and, and peace building, in fact, seriously enough? Um, there's often a bit of an assumption, perhaps, made that just by investing a lot in, in uh, poverty reduction and, and putting development aid and, and other kinds of aid uh, uh, into a country and building schools and improving healthcare uh, and, when needed, provide humanitarian assistance, that that in and of itself will have an impact on peace. And where we've been arguing for quite a while to say, no, uh, that in itself is, is not enough. We may well build a lot of schools, and we may even get the teachers to actually work in the schools, and you still are not improving uh, factors and conditions or addressing that, that are at risk of uh, uh, lurching a country into violence, of everything. So it is a much more complicated story. And the other thing that I want to come back to briefly at some point here is, since I work for a development agency, and, and as Phil said, we are also, at one point, we are part of an international community that tries, and in recent decades has tried to articulate very big, ambitious goals for, for the globe through the Millennium Development Goals and now through the SDGs. At the same time, our ministers want to be able to tell their constituents that the tax money that we are administrating in the name of over, uh, official development aid is delivering results tomorrow 
because Mrs. Jones in Shropshire wants to know that every single penny is penned well, and her member of parliament needs to tell her that tomorrow. Again, we, Phil mentioned you know, the issue about complexity and how long this takes. So what happens in the aid industry, including when we work on peace building or conflict resolution, but we projectize everything, and our planning cycles tend to be three to five years. And yet we're talking about very long-term societal changes that we often actually don't even have the influence to, to really, really change a country. The assumption that uh, just because we have a big aid program somewhere that we can completely influence a country's fate is, is a bit presumptuous. Uh, and we've been in recent years trying to uh, tone down some of our ambitions and saying we can support a country, yes. We can maybe help a nudge here and there, but, but we shouldn't say we, as an external actor, can come in and somehow build the peace and build the state. And we have to face up to the fact that we seem to suggest that in interventions like Afghanistan or in Iraq, and we fail bitterly. Um, and we have to learn from that uh, rather urgently. Given the fact that I'm going through a few statistics that my colleague from the Institute for Economics and Peace has quickly blown away. They make the same point that I wanted to make to give a little bit of context of what's been happening in the last few years. So, you know, if you read, read Steven Pinker's book um, that had been making the rounds, and even my permanent secretary read, at least he claims he read it since it's, it's that big, um, and suggests that really, yes, okay, we may be feeling that the world is in more crisis, but if you look at it over the long term and human trajectory, we're on a good path and things will be okay. So that's an unfair summary of, uh, you know, 700 pages book, but Nonetheless, um, so the question is, do we have a blip in historical terms over the last few decades in terms of peace and conflict uh, or not? At the moment, when you look at statistics, particularly over the last seven years or so, the science, we, we have, um, this is uh, based on statistics from the Institute of Economics and Peace and their Global Peace Index, then we are seeing by this measure, we have a bit of a deterioration in peace. So it's not just in a, a perception by, by the kind of crisis that, that, that we are very well aware of from Syria and elsewhere, but also globally. Um, it is, if you measure it by battle deaths, which is an imperfect measure of peace and conflict, but certainly a, a, a something to look at. Again, we're seeing over the last few years, while we, by the mid-noughties, had quite a significant decrease in, in the whole period after the end of the second uh, of the Cold War. Um, but in recent years, since 2010-11 onwards, we have had a strong increase in battle deaths again, and it's as high as it, uh, uh, as, 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 um, it hasn't been in, in 20 years. We all know that refugee levels are at a historic high, since the highest since the end of the Second World War, and we all are aware of the implications for this. At the same time, we know that um, a, a, the, the particular means of war, if you will, of terrorism has been causing a very high number of deaths, including in those battle death statistics, and that has been increasing dramatically since 2010. Although, bear in mind that those figures are concentrated in just very few countries. It is not sort of a global phenomenon. Um, so we have to be very mindful of like, where we're actually talking about. Um, at the same time, you can also look at, and this is again coming back to SDGs, whose principal purpose is to reduce poverty and, and create better lives for everyone around the world, is what the economic impact of violence ultimately is. And the, again, the Institute for Economics and its Global Peace Index tried to calculate by some measure what it is. And you come up with you know, startling statements that in last year alone, 
the economic impact of violence was $13.6 trillion, 13% of, of global uh, gross domestic product. That are, these are very, very high figures. Again, we have to bear in mind that this isn't the same across the world. There are huge regional variations and, and for different reasons. So whereas we are currently very, very uh, concerned with everything in the Middle East, um, because we are involved in these wars and we're concerned about migration and the knock-on effects on our own neighborhood for various reasons. Um, in Central America and the Caribbean, you have particularly high levels of economic impact and violence um, as well. And they're not because of civil war. Most of the countries have been able to leave their civil wars behind by the early noughties and the most recent and success in that sense of reaching a peace deal that is far from conclusive is Colombia. And yet, you have very high levels of violence and you cannot be talking in many of those countries about a positive peace because uh, there are still highest levels of inequality in a lot of countries uh, around the world and very high levels of, of um, interpersonal and criminal violence, the cost of which on societies by economic measures and social are, are extremely high. So it's not just about the, the burning conflicts that are right in front of our doorstep when you look at it from a global perspective and it affects well-being and the opportunity and the ability to reach the high ambitions that the Sustainable Development Goals set out the world over. Um, so this is the point that I made earlier when I started to talk, you know, that, that when you look at the link between positive and development, that positive peace is, is, a, is a measure, again here, metrics that the Institute for Economics and Peace use, <clears throat> and you can look at it with a number of different sort of metrics, but you will come to the similar con conclusion that there is a, a correlation between countries with stronger positive peace, imagine it along the measures that Phil gave you earlier, if you want, you know, have progressed further in the achievement of the Millennium Development Goals in the last 15 years, Whereas what I said earlier, those who were strongly affected by conflict violence hardly read, reached a single one of the Millennium Development Goals. So what has DFID done in the meantime? Um, we, in 2010, published for the very first time a document that we always refer to as a peace-building and state-building document. And it was the culmination of two years of thinking you know, at the beginning and in the middle of the Millennium Development Goal era to say, we're missing a trick here. There are a lot of countries where we're working and we're not making the progress that we're making, partly because they are so affected by conflict and violence. And we didn't have any document that really spelled out what we're thinking about this and what we think we need to do differently in order to, to build more positive peace at a minimum, help stop the violence, because without it, we cannot reach our developmental goals, our poverty reduction goals. So we articulated this for the first time in a document called, that was called Building Peaceful States and Societies. And roughly, it had a number of underlying assumptions in it, but basically it said something like this. Uh, as long as we meet people's expectations, mostly through basic services, education and healthcare, and manage to have a political settlement uh, that keeps parties from fighting with each other, and get core state functions to work, um, whether it's security and justice or taxation, then we have sort of the recipe for um, uh, uh, a, a trajectory that builds better state-society relationships. And that's what should inform our thinking. We have to ask ourselves this. If you read the document, a lot of the arguments in there were more nuanced, but a lot of people sort of ultimately said, well, this means as long as we do what we always do, I'm 
caricaturing slightly, but still, basic services, so education, healthcare, and so forth, then it will have a positive effect. Then people will see that somebody cares, and they will have less grievances, and therefore be less prone to fighting, and therefore we'll have better state-society relationships, and therefore we have better conditions for peace. That was sort of an underlying uh, assumption. And sort of about two years ago, one and a half years ago, uh, after the elections in 2015, when the government usually revisits its big policy agendas, etc., and this government, the last government that is currently putting itself uh, to be uh, uh, before the voters again, decided to do a number of things. It said, um, actually, we're going to increase, we're going to increase even more our spending in fragile and conflicted countries. We, the government made statements like spending 50% of DFID's budget alone in fragile and conflicted countries. Previously, it was 30% every year of, of the respective parliament. And we said, okay, ministers, that is ambitious, um, but we should have learned by now that just spending that money in those countries isn't going to get us more peaceful societies. And in fact, a lot has happened in the world, and we have had a lot of setbacks in the previous few years. Countries that were, doing, were middle-income countries, including Syria, are now at risk of becoming poor countries again, uh, with the levels of, of destruction the war has, has wrought. Um, and it's the same case for a number of other countries. So, so what does that mean? And do our assumptions from, from six, seven years ago actually still hold? And so we went through a process um, of, of looking at that, and, and we felt, okay, some of the assumptions still hold, but there's a number of things that we missed. And so we tried to, to, to bring this on, looking at the evidence um, and, uh, um, uh, and some of our own experience. And, you know, at the end of the day, we struggled to find really good success stories of where we have, as the international community, intervened in quotation marks and tried to build peace sort of over the last... 10, 20 years, sort of in the post-Cold War era. There are some, and there are countries that managed, that you thought maybe they could have gone down a really bad track and didn't as badly as some others, like Indonesia, for example, or Ghana. Um, and yet, uh, really clear and easy success stories are really hard to find. And that's, again, because it's messy, it's complicated, right? Um, we try to sort of say, what does the evidence tell us about what makes countries more resilient to shocks? What makes countries, at a minimum, you know, more, more stable and ultimately uh, more peaceful? And we try to say um, there was a number of things that, that were missing at the time and, uh, and a number of things that, that, that still hold but that we have to really keep focusing on. And we try to articulate this in a framework which we're calling a building stability framework in order not to say here's a blueprint for all of our interventions and country offices to say here's what you need to do. That doesn't work. We're saying to offices you have to start by understanding the context within which you're working. That's the starting point. And here's a handrail. Here are some of the things that evidence and experience tells us that need to be in the mix. What the right mix for the country is you need to figure out with the people in that country yourself. It's not something we can say from the outside. But there are a couple of things that we can give you as an orientation. And they are roughly linked to things that Phil actually set out on his slide on positive peace, right? Because they are supported by evidence. Countries are and communities are more stable when different groups are included fairly within the structures of power. So we said fair power structures is important. 
not necessarily democracy. It's not saying elections is the thing that we need to do in order to get more peaceful societies. It is a, a different transitions in a society. What is it that people feel is fair? And we know that countries are much less stable and much more divided if especially groups, large groups in society, small groups feel they're excluded from the political deals in society. So a professor at Oxford here had uh, Francis Stewart is one of the people who had coined the term horizontal inequalities, which is about group-based inequalities, and that's one of the concepts that still ring quite true in the thinking that, that we're trying to bring in here. How do we understand that? How does that manifest itself in societies? The second thing was, which we left in the past out a lot, which was about econom the economic sphere, where we are making a strong case for saying that it's not just about the politics and the deals, you know, like an election and the power arrangements you make, but it's about the economics and that economic exclusion can worsen grievances that fuel violent conflict, it's, but especially when combined with other group inequalities, not in and of itself. It's to counter people who say, and I still go to meetings sometimes where a World Bank country director will tell me poverty and violence are inextricably interlinked, and I get so mad because the evidence really doesn't support that. Not every poor country uh, has lots of high levels of violence. Um, it's a very uh, faulty assumption. It's much, much more complex than that. Um, because it also leads you to wrong conclusions about what we're trying to, to support. The third dimension we have was about conflict resolution mechanisms. We often sort of assume that um, when countries have a lot of problems, that um, that's something that somebody will do. And we're saying it has to be much more full and front center in our thinking about it. We have to understand how societies at a local level, at a national level, but also at a regional level deal with conflict. We all have conflict all the time. We have a huge one in the United Kingdom at the moment, which may well uh, lead to the breakup of the United Kingdom as we know it. Who knows? But I think the chances are very low that um, we're going to go to war over it, I hope. Um, nonetheless, we also have had, and we often point this out to other countries, um, we have had a long-standing, very violent struggle in this very country with the Northern Ireland conflict. And there are huge mistakes that were made historically. And while it has been reasonably peaceful for a while on some measures, and mass, if you look at the amount of money both the United Kingdom and the European Union, for example, have invested in the Northern Ireland peace process per capita, it's one of the largest investments in peace ever historically. And yet, when you go to Northern Ireland these days and ask people whether they are more reconciled and so forth, it is still... Uh, um, uh, um, tenuous at best, and uh, it goes to show, it's a good example of saying how long these processes take, but and how important it is to understand how people are relating with each other and trying to deal with conflicts in a non-violent way, because that's what we're trying to, 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 to push for. Um, there's a, we have five sort of building blocks that we're trying to make people to think about, and again, it was sort of an effort to, to, to simplify complexity in order to have decision makers in our organization think about these kind of things. Uh, and, and as I said earlier, not make too simplistic assumptions that oh, as long as I do education and healthcare here, then it'll lead to peace and say, no, it's more complicated and we need to look at a whole range of, of uh, factors and how they interrelate to each other. The last two were about effective and legitimate institutions where again that countries and communities are more stable when they are governed by legitimate public authorities whose power is widely accepted and which meets people's priorities. So what does that mean in a given country context? And the last one is something that again the aid industry 
that tends to look at countries very much within their nation borders, right? We have a program in the Democratic Republic of Congo. We have, and a country office and an embassy and a United Nations mission, and we're, we're looking very much often at this country within its nation-state borders that were drawn up in the late 19th century on a drawing board. And yet we know that a lot of the conflict in these countries has massive regional dimensions in terms of how the people relate to each other across borders, positively in terms of trade and relationships they have, but also negatively, where the fighters come from, where they withdraw to, and all these kind of things. And ultimately, um, solutions to the Great Lakes region's series of conflicts can only be found by regional approaches. And yet, many, much of our thinking uh, blocks that out. And we're trying to bring that much more into our thinking. Um, I'm going to stop there to have some more time, both for my colleague and also for questions, but it was trying to give you a bit of a sense of why we're taking conflict resolution and peace building seriously, how we have tried to come from a place where we make just assumptions, but as long as we do poverty reduction, then it will contribute to more stable countries, and saying it's not as easy as that, and just look at what happened with the MDGs. And the big challenge with the sustainable development growth that are even more ambitious than the Millennium Development Goals were, and the UK pushed very hard to include a very particular one, number 16, which is particularly about uh, the first time that you have such a goal that is about peace and justice that didn't exist in the Millennium Development Goals. So it's a significant difference. The question is how we're going to live up to that ambition. And again, to avoid saying that, that I am suggesting that we can do so by running a lot of projects and programs that are quite linear, I will quote, uh, close with a quote not by um, the Dalai Lama or, um, or Aung San Suu Kyi or number of your esteemed members, but by Nick Cave, you know, that uh, musician that I happen to have read a couple of days ago in the newspaper. He was reflecting about something completely different, uh, tragedy he experienced in life and his art, music. But he said, the idea that we live life in a straight line, like a story, seems to me to be increasingly absurd and more than anything, a kind of intellectual convenience. I feel that the events in our lives are like a series of bells being struck and the vibrations spread outwards affecting everything, our present, our futures, and of course, our past as well. And it rang very strongly to me as saying, yep, that's what we're in a way trying to say. We're modeling complexity and when we do that, everything seems to be so neat as long as we do something about fair power structures, something about justice, something about this, then it'll add up to peace. And that's not how it works. Linearity that so many of our own projecting suggests um, is, 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 is not how life works. Um, so it is an intellectual convenience to try to model these things and push and challenge us. Um, but, but ultimately, um, it's more about a series of bells being struck and vibrations and how we respond to these and whether we can hear them. So thank you very much. <laughs>